Alright, Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa aftulu salati wa atamu taslimi ala Sayyidina Muhammadin al-Sadiq al-Ameen. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man istanna bi sunnatihi ila yawmiddin. Allahumma alimna ma yanfa'una wa anfa'na bima alamtana. Wa zidna min fadlika ilman wa ta'liman wa fiqhan wa amalan biddini Rabbil Alameen. Alhamdulillah, this is... I don't even know how far we've gone and to ask the Imam. I don't know if this is the seventh session, the eighth or tenth, I don't know. But it's been a while uh, because of Eid and things like that. So we're doing this in the beginning of the month, the first Wednesday of the month. So a lot of these questions, because they all come anonymously, and uh, I don't know if I see the dates of when they're arriving. I think, I think the dates are there, but I forget. So a lot of these questions were asked months ago, and I, and I take the ones that are the most related to each other, and I try to put them all together. And I'm somewhat selective in the questions that I address here. And so this means that if you've sent a question anonymously months ago, and I haven't gotten to it, I've seen it, and inshallah I will get to it. It's just I'm looking at what are the best questions to put together as a whole for each session. So tonight's session involves a little bit of personal questions and a little bit of fiqh questions because we began the Fardain classes a good while ago and we began the fiqh modules right before Ramadan. So right before Ramadan, you remember we covered the fiqh of fasting in two sessions and then we had Ramadan and then after Ramadan we began the fiqh of tahara, purification. And we just now began the fiqh of salat. This is, I think, the, the third or fourth session coming on Friday. So there are a number of questions that relate to fiqh that are related to the class itself. And we're going to address those, inshallah, uh, as well as some other questions. The first question is not related to anything we've covered in the class. They say, Assalamu alaikum, what is the ruling on applying hair dye for men and women? Is it permissible to apply non-black colors? You know, there's the implication here that there's an issue with black hair dye. Is it permissible to use chemical or natural dyes? So you'll notice the questioner is not asking about using black hair dye because that's fairly well known that there are some issues with that in Islamic law. So they're asking about using hair dye for men and using it for women and using other colors besides black. And if you can use hair dyes that are not from natural ingredients. So there's a few issues here, we'll look at them. We say that it is permissible. Uh, in fact, it is even mandub recommended to dye the hair of the head and the beard when the person has some gray hairs, provided the ingredients within the hair dye are halal, whether they are chemicals or otherwise. If the hair dye is made of some chemicals, one should exercise some due diligence to make sure that any chemical in the hair dye is not harmful in the long term. But as long as it's halal, it is not just permissible, it is even recommended to dye the hair and the beard when the hairs become gray. And this is because the Messenger of Allah said 
to dye the white hairs and do not imitate the Jews. So in this hadith, the Prophet is telling us that it was something the Jews did not do. And so we should not imitate them by just leaving them white. Instead, we should dye them. Now the ulama have a, a consensus, an ijma'ah, that this command is for recommendation and not obligation. Uh, because if it was a command, it means that we couldn't have gray hair. Everyone would have to use henna or some other hair dye. But there's ijma'ah that it is not obligatory, even though it says to do it in opposition to the Jews. Now, looking into the seerah and the shema'il, we see that there is a difference of opinion about whether or not the Prophet ﷺ himself used dye, just as there is a difference of opinion about his blessed gray hairs and how many they were. So we, don't, we know that difference of opinion exists, but we know also that Sayyiduna Abu Bakr as-Siddiq and Sayyiduna Umar radiallahu anhuma used to dye their hair and the hairs on their beard. And this is permissible. And the typical dye used uh, and mentioned in the hadith and found in the athar is henna. Uh, also ketam, right? Ketam is another kind of hair dye used from another plant. So these are the two types of dye that were recognized and used most frequently by the Arabs in that time. Now regarding the black hair dye, there is a hadith, there's actually a number of hadith which prohibit the use of black hair dye and give a severe warning to the person who does so. Uh, one hadith says that the person who, who puts uh, black hair dye on their hair will not smell the fragrance of paradise. And this would indicate that it's even a major sin. However, the ulama discuss the instances when it will be permissible and even praiseworthy to use black hair dye. There are circumstances where it would be allowed and even praiseworthy. They mention, for example, the mujahid the one who is in jihad fi sabirillah, who dyes his hair black in order to make himself look younger and therefore stronger, striking fear into the hearts of the enemy. So anything that he does that creates a psychological advantage over the enemy, uh, that's in, in this manner would be allowed. So it is a kind of deception, but al-harbu khid'ah. So war is deception. So in that circumstance, the ulama agree it will be permissible to use black hair dye in, uh, for the mujahid. It's also, uh, it mentions in the books of fiqh that if a person is using black hair dye for uh, adornment, you know, to look nice for one's husband or for one's wife, to look attractive to them, the ulama differ about this. Some of them say this is permissible. Others say it is impermissible. To use black dye, hair dye to appear younger, to receive someone, say, say you're going to meet a prospective fiancé and you dye your hair black to make yourself look younger, that is haram by ittifaq, by agreement. The difference of opinion is about someone using black hair dye uh, for their husband or for their wife, 
Some of the ulama say this is allowed and others say that it's not. And you have within the Hanafi school, for instance, you have the position of Imam Abu Hanifa and Imam Abu Yusuf. And both of them permitted the use of black hair dye for adornment for the wife specifically or especially to adorn herself for her husband. And we do have some narrations they use to support this position. Uh, one narration they cite from Sayyidina Uthman as well as a narration from Sayyidina Hassan and Sayyidina Hussein mentioned that they would dye their hair with black dye as a means of looking nice for their wives. So these are narrations that would indicate this was understood as permissible by a number of Sahaba. Imam Abu Yusuf, the great student of Imam Abu Hanifa and a mujtahid in his own right, he says, as quoted by Ibn Abidin in Rad al-Muhtar, he says, as I desire my wife to adorn herself for me, she also desires that I adorn myself for her. So in that area, there's some wiggle room, we could say, black hair dye. If a person wants to be cautious, they would avoid it in that situation. So going back to the discussion on hair dye and permissibility, in conclusion, if the ingredients are permissible and the color is not black, a person can use that man or woman to cover up the hairs that are gray, or whether it's the head or the beard. Most of the discussion about hair dye concerns a person using it for covering up the gray hair of the head or the beard. You don't really find a discussion about using hair dye for a young person who doesn't have any gray hair. But obviously you see in this society and elsewhere now that people dye their hair even if they don't have a single strand of gray hair. So we say that it is permissible in origin to dye the hair and one doesn't just have to use henna, it can be any color other than black provided they're not using colors that are distinctive and specific for certain categories of people who are known for corruption. So this would mean that it would be prohibited for a person to go out and dye their hair blue and pink and purple because if you see the people who do that, they represent a certain lifestyle, a very degenerate lifestyle. And one should not imitate the fusaq, corrupt and degenerate people. So if a person dyes their hair brown, or they dye it red, or even blonde, uh, in general, these things are permissible provided the ingredients are halal and there's no long-term uh, negative health effects of those chemicals. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. Okay, so the next question is uh, a personal question. And this, per this person says, I have an issue with my son who is an MD and has chosen to forego his medical career for his religion. It is a sad thing to do, and he claims the system is not for him. I need your help to make him see that religion is doing what he has learned in medical school. I am very disappointed in his decision. Please help and advise. Now, the answer to this is going to get me in a little bit of hot water, but uh, bismillah, I'll, I'll wait into the hot water. 
First, I want to note that this actually isn't a question at all. It's not a question. It's a request put to me, and it's an assumption made by this person. So it's an anonymous question. I don't know who's asking it, if they're in our community or elsewhere. If I know you, feel free to reach out to me privately. In the meantime, I ask you to allow me to gently push back on this request and challenge some of the assumptions and give you a, a rounded, balanced reply, insha'Allah ta'ala. So first he says, I'm assuming it's a he, it says, I need your help to make him see that religion is doing what he has learned in medical school. So I assume that he means practicing medicine is serving others, and serving others is a virtue in Islam. If that is the structure of the argument, we can say that this applies to virtually any career that involves service to other people. So if religion is doing what he learned in medical school because he's serving patients, this also means that the person who is cleaning the bathrooms inside of the hospital is also practicing their religion because they're serving people by cleaning. The person working at the halal pizzeria is also practicing the religion because they're doing something halal in service to others. So it's not really, here's an assumption here, right? Religion is doing what he learned in medical school. But that's not the only thing that religion is, right? We can say religion is cleaning hospital bathrooms, working in pizza, halal pizzerias, uh, any sort of service to other people. So I want to push back and say that this is not how we should be viewing religion as such. We should not view deen as a kind of tool that we pick up when we need it and use it to do our bidding and then we put it down. This is not how we should look at matters of deen. So going back to the issue of medicine and practicing medicine, what is the ruling on studying medicine and becoming an MD? It, what, where does it fall in the five rulings of Sharia? Okay. Could, be, could be necessary if, if there's no other doctors. Could be necessary. So the general ruling for learning and practicing medicine is that it's for kifaya. Right? It's a communal obligation. So it's a communal obligation. So there has to be enough people in the community who are doing it so that the obligation falls off the rest of the people. If there's not enough people fulfilling that role in a society or in a place, then the obligation falls upon everyone. Everyone is sinful until there are enough people to serve that role. So learning medicine and practicing medicine is fault of kifaya. Um, what about, what about taking medicine if you're a patient? What's the hukum on that? Where does it fall among the five? <laughs> no. no. The, 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 the jamhur of the ulama say that taking medicine is mubah. Uh, it's, not, it's not wajib. Because you have a choice. Anyhow, that's a side discussion, but... One of the things the fuqaha also say is that, because we said learning medicine and serving as a doctor is far kifaya. 
They also say, Kifayatu al kifayati kifayatun. Which means, when you have enough people fulfilling the far kifaya, then that's enough. You don't have to treat that thing as if it's fardain for that person, as if somehow they're neglecting a duty if there are in fact enough people doing it. So we can say, I can push back and say, you know, maybe we have enough doctors, you know, maybe we do. So you shouldn't religiously blackmail your child by making them feel as if they're neglecting an obligation if they choose to go into a different career path. Your son says here that he's, he's not even in medical school. He's, he's already an MD, which means he's a grown man. You know, a grown man. He can make his own decisions about his career. If he wants to go into another field, then he has that right. If you look at other roles in society, because I see where the question's coming from, because I know the, the underlying tensions there. If you look at uh, an alim, right, a faqih, who, who guides and teaches and, and, and helps people and conveys the deen, right? The alim, the true alim of the sharia has a higher status than a doctor. Right? When we talk about Talabul Ilmi ala kulli Muslim, all of the hadith that speak about ilm are in the context of what some call sacred knowledge, which means knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and knowledge of the ahkam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what it is. But because of the social status of doctors today compared to scholars and also because of the degraded standard of Islamic education in many of our madaris across the world, you, you have this phenomena where, of course, the doctor will have a higher social status than the person who becomes, you know, alim, you know, mulvisab, you know, because that's where the loser kids go, you know. They couldn't cut it in school, so the parents send them to the madrasa and they go through the Dars Nizami curriculum, uh, they come out and they're a sheikh, they're a scholar, right? So yes, that's a true challenge that we have in the Ummah, where the madaris, the, thing, the schools that are supposed to produce scholars have degraded, that's true. But if a person was pursuing knowledge properly and, uh, and that was, that's what they aspired to, they could aspire to a higher station than a doctor. Because both of them are tabibs. You have the tabib of the abdan, the doctor of the bodies. And then you have the tabib of the, of the souls. And the tabib of the souls has a higher status than the one who's just the tabib of the body. I know where the tension is coming from. You have to respect his choices. He's a grown man. You have to give him space as well. So I'm assuming some things here. I'm assuming here from the question or the request that this person's son is a doctor and they're feeling dissatisfied in their career and they've also become more religiously committed. You know, something's happened in their life where they feel they want to become more strict and more committed to their deen. When that happens, often the person 
has a kind of conversion experience. It's almost as if they're converting to Islam because they're making a very clear commitment and decision to follow the deen and not just have it as a part of their identity. Sometimes when that happens, a lot of times when that happens, the, the convert Muslim or the newly practicing Muslim can become very zealous. They can become very eager. And out of that zealousness, they may say things or do things that are drastic or going in an unbalanced direction and they need guidance. So I say you respect his choices and respect that he will have to find a means of livelihood that will contribute to his well-being as a grown man and that his occupation or his life is not just an extension of you where it's your social status tied to his. And sometimes when people become more practicing, they get overcome by this zealous attitude and they may make rash decisions. And if you suspect that's the case with your son, you should encourage your son to connect with teachers, connect with ulama, to connect with mentors and elders, people who can ground him in his understanding of the deen and in his practice of the deen. They're not going to say, just go beg in the streets because it's all dunya and you should be a zahid. No, they'll ground his religiosity through proper education and proper tarbiyah and he'll learn from them and benefit from them. And make sure that he finds good companions who are upright and who are religious while also being balanced in their temperaments and in their character. You don't want to have a case where someone becomes newly practicing Islam after being maybe a nominal Muslim and then they get with a crowd of mutatarrifun, people who are really extreme in their approach to Islam and their understanding of Islam and they become misguided because this has happened in our history it's happened even in the time of the Prophet people who would take things to extremes the problem is what we, did, what we consider an extreme a person who is a nominal Muslim might think praying five times a day is extreme, why do you got to be so strict? you know they see a person doing the bare minimum of, of Islam and that to them is extreme. Their perspective is way over here, so anything further from this is extreme, right? The extreme goes in two different directions. There's the extreme in excessiveness and then there's the extreme in neglect, ifrat wa tafriyat. So we don't measure extremes from the person who is nominal and not so strict in their practice of Islam. We judge extreme from the balance, the middle way, which is the guidance of Allah and His Messenger So I understand the challenge and the, the background here, but he's a grown man and offer him guidance and pray for him. And uh, inshallah, he finds something that works for him that gives him fulfillment uh, in his life. Okay. Now for the fiqh questions. These are a lot easier. Uh, this question says, uh, I have a few questions about on wudu slash ghusl. Hopefully, inshallah, you will address them in your ongoing lectures. Well, we'll do them right now. 
Number one, does checking blood sugar by pricking the finger break wudu? Does it? No, it doesn't. The Prophet ﷺ had the hijama done while fasting, the cupping. And that releases more blood than a pinprick. So if the hijama doesn't break the fast, فَمِنْ بَابِ أَوْلَى Even more so, a pinprick will not break the fast. Second question. Uh, this is wudu. Ah, wudu or fasting. I'm thinking fasting. Yeah, for wudu, uh, pr- pricking the finger, if it's coming out in the Hanafi school, that would break the wudu. I don't know why I'm thinking fasting. Because uh, there's fasting questions here too. That's why. Uh, the tashif min indi. I just misread the, the phrase. Uh, when w- the size, yeah, if it's a pinprick, it spreads beyond the size of a dinar, yes. If it's just a prick like this, that's najasa, you would clean that, but it's not breaking the wudu until it reaches a certain amount. Uh, this is in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa. Uh, and for the record, I'm answering these questions based on the Hanafi school because that's what we're teaching in the Fardain class. Uh, is wudu broken when a person changes a diaper and cleans his or her baby by wiping or by using water since it would involve touching private parts of the baby? Now this question is repeated a couple of times in a couple of different ways. So let's explain this a bit. Uh, in the Hanafi school, touching one's own private parts does not break wudu. In the other schools, it depends. Some of the madhahib, they say it only breaks wudu if there's shahwa, right? But in the Hanafi school, it's actually the most lenient in this regard. Even with shahwa, it's not breaking the wudu unless something is emitted. So if that's for the person's own private parts, then even more so uh, that of a baby for whom that doesn't factor into the equation. They're just changing the baby's diaper. So simply touching the private parts as a person is changing a a baby's diaper, uh, that's not going to break wudu. However, it is recommended to wash one's hand afterward. And although you don't have to make wudu, according to the Hanafi school, if you change a baby's diaper and touch the privates while cleaning it, it's still recommended to make wudu. Why? Because you have areas where there are differences of opinion. So in the Shafi school, you would need to make wudu. In the Hanafi school, you would not. So in the Hanafi school, they say, if you touch the private parts of a baby when changing the diaper, it doesn't break your wudu, but it's still recommended to make wudu khurujan min al-khilaf, to escape the difference of opinion on the issue. So that you're basically safe. So in the Shafi school you have wudu in the Hanafi school you have wudu you're good to go there's no there's no reason to doubt uh, although if a person didn't make wudu they're absolutely fine according to the school of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah ta'ala so we'll remember the answer to this question because it informs the answer to a few other questions coming this person also asks is it necessary to cover the awra while taking ghusl in modern bathrooms with not only doors but shower curtains. So you have a bathroom, there's a door, you close the door, you lock it, 
there's a shower curtain. This person is asking, in that circumstance, are you required to cover your aura with some article of clothing? The answer is no. Uh, this is absolutely fine. There are some ulama, especially in the pre-modern fiqh text, who mention the recommendation to wear the izar or some kind of wrap when a person is taking the ghusl. But if a person is in a bathroom where it's an enclosed space and they're reasonably certain no one's going to walk in, no stranger, then there's no need for them to cover their aura because the shower curtain fulfills that purpose. And we'll have a few more bathroom questions coming. The next question, this is from the same questioner, is it necessary to perform wudu separately after a ghusl? So the idea is, they're asking, you take the ghusl, you're finished. Do you now have to make a wudu? Why, why, why would they ask that? They say, since invariably the aura gets touched during the shower. So you see the tasawwur they have. So there's, a, there's, there's an assumption here. They're thinking that touching their aura must somehow break the wudu. So they're saying, they're, if it's breaking the wudu, does that mean that once we finish the ghusl, we have to make wudu again? Or we do a fresh wudu? So they say, is it necessary to perform wudu separately after ghusl, since invariably the aura gets touched during the shower? If so, can wudu be done in the shower itself? Or should it be done at the sink after putting on clothes? So we already answered the question about touching the privates. Touching the aura outside of the private area does not break wudu. And if your wudu is not broken by touching your privates, and it's not broken by touching your aura area in the ghusl, by taking the ghusl, you're done. You don't have to make a wudu after that. Um, and there's a question here, it's kind of an if so, you know, if that's the case, can wudu be done in the shower itself or should it, have to be, or should it be done at the sink after putting on clothes? Uh, we'll get to that and there's a couple of questions like this too. So this person says, can we say shahada and recite duas in the shower after ghusl? or recite after coming out. And I, I'm thinking this is why they're asking about making the wudu in the sink and not the shower. Because when you make wudu, it's the sunnah to say, Bismillah. And so this question is basically related to the previous one. Can we say shahada and recite duas in the shower after ghusl or recite after coming out? As far as the duas are concerned, whether it is the dua when you begin the ghusl with bismillah or the masnoon dua after you're done and there's a few right ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika la wa ashhadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluhu allahumma ij'alni min at-tawwabin wa ij'alni min al-mutatahhirin there's a few if the toilet and the bathroom so we have the the toilet itself the the area where the person relieves themselves, if the toilet and the shower or the bathroom, including the sink, if they're all attached to one another, then the ulama say that one should recite the dua for wudu 
in their heart and not on their tongue. This is what they say. So yes, you are reading the dua, you're, you're saying the dua, but it's in your heart and not your tongue. So this is if the toilet where a person relieves themselves and the shower area where they bathe are connected and there's nothing separating them. So you, know, you go back east, you know the bathrooms where everything's in one place. Like exactly. So in those places, the place you shower is the same place you take care of your needs. So if the shower area and the bathroom area where one relieves themselves are attached, but also separated by something, where they're separate from each other, such as a small wall, even if it's glass, or some structure that goes between them, then these are separate spaces. And the fuqaha say, in that case, you can read the du'as even with your tongue inside of the shower area, because although it's in adjacent to the toilet, there is a separation by some kind of barrier, even if it's partial or glass or whatever. Uh, and yes, we argue that a curtain, as well as the elevation of the tub, serves that purpose. So if a person goes into the shower to take the ghusl, they're separate from the toilet area by those barriers. Therefore, they can say Bismillah and the concluding dua. If they don't feel right about that, if they have some you know, misgiving about it, they can go back to the previous ruling, which is to say it in their heart and not their tongue. Uh, another option is to say Bismillah before one enters the bathroom and then say the closing dua after they come out. So it may take a minute or two, but that's another option. But if someone follows this ruling uh, and applies it to modern day bathrooms and shower fixtures, then they're, they're good, they're okay, inshallah. Uh, the next question, and this is all from the same question, there's about six or seven questions in one. They say, does a woman need to take ghusl if she gets an orgasm during permissible foreplay while she is in her menstrual period or okay to wait until done with periods? So I'm not entirely sure what the questioner means here by permissible foreplay while she is on her menstrual period. And that is because it is haram for the husband to touch the area between the navel and the knees of his wife when she is on her period, unless there is a ha'il, a kind of barrier of clothes and the like. So I'm not sure what the questioner means by this. As far as ghusl is concerned, if a woman is on her menstrual cycle, right? so the, the menstrual cycle is a cause, it is something that negates ritual purity. And this is why she cannot pray. This is why she does not fast. And when her period is over and she takes the ghusl, she now has raised that state, that hadath, from her. And now she can pray and now she can fast. So the hayl is a cause for that state. 
حدث الأكبر. Uh, an orgasm could also be another cause of a hadith al-akbar. However, depending on what we're talking about here, it's unclear. But if there is one hadith, but the other hadith remains, then there's no, you can, they can take the ghusl, but the status of al-hadith al-akbar remains because they're on their period. So I'm not sure what the question means there. Um, I, I guess they're saying, do they have to take a ghusl from the orgasm even though they're on their period? Uh, depending on what they mean, no. And if they did, it would just be a shower. It's not going to raise the status uh, and, and render them tahira. Wallahu a'lam. Okay, now we have a question from, and this question comes all the way from India. Yeah. So we have a question next month from Estonia. Yeah. Uh, I would have done it tonight, but it's a, the answer's a bit long, and I want to do it justice. So this question from India says, Assalamu uh, alaikum. My question is that I had made a statement while repenting to Allah. So they, they made tawbah for something, and they said they made a statement. My statement was, O oh Allah, I will not waste my time again. Will this statement be considered as a form of oath or not? I had wasted my time after making the statement in social media. Astaghfirullah. Do I need to do the kafara or not? Uh, this is a common question uh, because there's a bit of confusion many people have about the nature of promises and oaths and the like. So basically in our fiqh, we have three types of emphatic statements. Some of them have consequences, others do not. So you have promises. A person makes a promise, a wa'ad. Then you have the oath, the qasam. And then you have the, or the yameen. And then you have the nadr, which is the vow. They sound similar, but each one is different and each one has its own consequence for being broken. So the best way to answer this question is not just to say yes or no. It is to explain the difference between these so that the person understands what they are thereby giving them clarity for the future, should they make a promise or a vow or an oath. Okay? So the short and quick answer is that you would need to do the kafara, the expiation, if you took an oath, a yameen, while doing so. But if it was a promise and not an oath, there's no kafara. So what's the difference? So we mentioned three things, the promise, the oath, and the vow, the nadr. The promise is basically a statement that you're going to do something or you're going to refrain from doing something in the future. I'm not going to waste my time on social media anymore. That's a promise. You're, you're promising yourself you're not going to do that anymore. 
if a person makes a promise like this and they say, Oh Allah, I'm not going to do it anymore. If they make the promise and they break it, it would be sinful to break the pro- to make the promise with the intention of breaking it. But if a person made that promise and intended to carry it out, yet broke it later on, it would be disliked, but there's no kafara. So this is a person saying, Oh Allah, I'm going to give up Facebook. I'm going to give up Instagram. I promise. This is it. This is a promise. For them to intentionally, uh, for them to intend to break the promise is sinful. For them to break it later on without intending to do so, but it happens, that's disliked, but it's, there's no kafara for this. The oath, the yameen, is the verbal statement that is co-joined with the phrase like billah, uh, like by Allah, or uqsimu billah, or billahi uh, alayhi, by Allah, I swear an oath by Allah, and so on. Or wallahi, billahi, watallahi, and all of these variations. These are uh, oaths. And you have different types of oaths. The, the most, the deadly one is al-yamin al-ghamus, which is the, the engulfing oath. And that is when a person swears by Allah by saying, Wallahi, I did such and such, or I didn't do such and such, while they're lying. So basically it's saying Wallahi while telling a lie. This is called al-yamin al-ghamus. And they call it ghamus because لِيَنَّهُ يَغْمِسُ صَاحِبَهُ فِي النَّارِ it, it, it engulfs the person in the flames of hell. This is why they call it the engulfing oath. This is a kabira. And the ulama say it is a kabira. And it's so great a major sin to swear an oath by Allah while lying that there is no kafara. There's no kafara that's enough to lift that sin. They have to make tawbah and ask Allah's forgiveness. The other kind of oath is what they call yameen mun'aqid, or the enacted oath. And this is when a person swears they're going to do something, or they're not going to do something in the future. They say, I swear by Allah, I'm not going to eat fish for one week. If they make that kind of oath, to not do something, or to do something, uh, by Allah, it, I'm going to pray four rak'ahs and read one juz in each rak'ah. If they make the oath like this, it's mun'aqid, it takes effect. They have to fulfill it. If they do not fulfill it, then they have to do the kafara. So the kafara is feeding ten people, poor people, two meals each, or clothe them one garment each, or give them the equivalent in money. And if a person doesn't have the money to do any of that, then they fast three consecutive days. That's the kafara. Then you have the mistaken oath. And this is yameen lagu, right? La yu'akhidhukum allahu 
Allah says in the Quran, He does not take you to task for those oaths that you take uh, out of, you know, mistakenly or uh, without intending an oath. Uh, and this happens to swear about something in the past, particularly to say, Wallahi, such and such happened and it didn't happen. You weren't lying, you just you made an error in judgment. You thought that it happened, but it didn't. That is a yameen, because you're saying wallahi, or a similar phrase, but that thing didn't actually occur. You just made a mistake. Is there a kafara for that? No. Allah Ta'ala says explicitly, He does not take you to task for these kinds of oaths. So you have promises, you have oaths, and then lastly you have the vow, the nadr. The nadr is to verbally swear that if something happens in the future, you're going to do some act of worship, like prayer or fasting or giving charity and so on. If that thing happens, then it is wajib on you to fulfill that oath. And if a person neglects that oath, it remains upon them to fulfill it. Uh, if it is uh, conditioned by time and they break it, then there's expiation. So this questioner is asking about them seeking forgiveness for wasting time on social media. And he says, I made tawbah and I said, Oh Allah, I will not waste my time. Is that a vow, an oath, or a promise? It's a promise. And we said that as long as the person doesn't intend to break the promise, there's no sin on them. If they break it, it's disliked, but there's no expiation involved. So it's important to know these distinctions. Uh, the ulama say that you should avoid making vows if you can. And you should avoid saying wallahi too frequently as well. Some of the salaf used to say, wallahi silahul munafiq. Saying wallahi is the weapon of the hypocrite. That's how they get out of trouble. And you, you see that in our especially among young people, right? I don't know why. I, I, yeah, I guess, I guess as kids, you know, even, even us as kids growing up, we'd say, swear to God. Uh, we'd say worse things, you know. Like people would say in, impermissible oaths, such as swear on your mother's grave or swear or break my mother's back. You know, really strange kind of... These are forms of ta'kidat, tawkidat, emphasis. Uh, so kids will say that a lot, you know. Wallahi, he has the pizza. Wallahi al-azim, he brought the candy. You should teach your children to avoid this. Uh, and even in this society and the previous generation, our parents and grandparents would come down on us hard. And they say, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Don't say wallahi all the time. Don't say I swear to God all the time. Because even if you're tell telling the truth every time, it's only a matter of time before you say it for something false. It could be a mistake as well. So it's better to avoid. And to avoid making vows as, as well. I mean, the vow isn't going to speed up getting what you want. Right? Just, <laughs> yeah, and there's other details here I'm not mentioning. Like, like a vow for something that's already wajib on you. Does that take place? Is there a kafara for that? You know, there's little details like that. You don't say... Uh, if Allah heals my child, I'm going to pray five times a day my father's prayer. You don't do that. It's already fard on you. Right? 
But there's differences about whether there's a kafara for that or not. So in this brother's case, he made a promise, and inshallah he's okay. There's no kafara needed. All right. Uh, a couple more questions. This person says, uh, Fard Ain, episode 18, module 3, clears a lot of questions that have been troubling me for a long time regarding fasting. Alhamdulillah. There's still one doubt, though, from the lecture. What was said is that forgetfulness is differentiated from accidents. So if a person forgetfully eats something, that would not break a fast. But if water, while bathing, enters the throat by accident, the person would be required to make up that fast. Is my understanding correct? So we spoke about this in the class. On the surface, they look exactly the same. So let's usually in the class we speak about a, a person who's preparing iftar in the kitchen and, and they're fasting and they accidentally taste the food because that's what they usually do outside of Ramadan. And they forgot they were fasting. They continue fasting. They don't make up that day. They just, they don't eat anymore. But that was done out of forgetfulness. And for the accident scenario, we mentioned the, the shower example. The person is fully aware that they're fasting while they're showering. But as they lift their head up, water accident goes into their nose and accidentally it goes past the, the nasal cavity into the throat and they swallow it. What's the difference? The difference is that in when the accident occurred, the person knew they were fasting in that moment. But they didn't intentionally take that water into their mouth or their throat. But because they were aware they were fasting, this is going to break the fast. But there's no sin because it wasn't done on purpose. Whereas the person who completely forgets, they don't have to make up that fast. There's no sin on them uh, because it was, a forgetful, it was out of forgetfulness. So that's the first part of this question. The second question, as a follow-up from this one, so if eye drops enter the throat by accident, a person would be required to make up that fast later while continuing the fast for the day? Is this correct? What's the answer to that one? No. So this person is saying, if eye drops enter the throat by accident, the person would be required to make up that fast. So they're, they're comparing the shower example, or eye drops to the shower, right? Uh, and the answer is that water entering your nose and going to your throat while fasting will break the fast. But eye drops entering your eyes and going through the same general area will not. Because, as we said in the class, the fast is only broken when a substance enters the body cavity from a recognized point of entry. Al-manfath or manafid al-mu'tabara, the recognized points of entry, such as the mouth, the nose, or the front or the back private parts. Anything else 
is not a manfad mu'tabar, not a recognized entry point of substances into the body. All right? Which means that whether the person, whether, whether the eye drops came through or not, yeah, I mean, you don't forgetfully do that, right? Because it's not really in your control. Either way, nothing's happening to you. Your fast is completely uh, fine and valid. Alhamdulillah. Okay, and a couple more questions here. What is the wisdom behind not doing tayammum with malleable things or the things that turn into ashes? Remember we mentioned how in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, tayammum is not allowed uh, with objects that are malleable, meaning trees or uh, things like iron and the like. Uh, things that melt, like iron melts, steel melts, uh, or things that turn to ashes like trees and bushes and the like. Why is it, they're asking, what's the wisdom behind tayammum not being allowed uh, with, say, the trunk of a tree or a shard of iron or piece of steel? And the answer is that in the Qur'an, when Allah Ta'ala gives us the dispensation of tayammum, he describes it as striking the earth with sa'idan tayyiba, with pure earth, pure earth. Stones are of the sa'id. They're just in a concentrated form, a concentrated form, but they are from the earthen substance. And therefore, you can touch them as you make tayammum. A tree or a shard of iron is not uh, earthen in its origin. It is coming from the earth, but it's not earthen in its origin. It's something else separate from it. Right? So anything that's growing out of the earth is not the earth. But a stone is of the earth the steel or iron, anything that's melted, it is in the earth and it's malleable, but it's not the earth. It's not the Sa'id described in the Quran. So that's why. Uh, question says, when we were studying about Tayammum's conditions, one of them was, that, uh, was the sickness and how to determine it. It said, medical opinion from dot, 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 ellipsis, who's not openly corrupt. I didn't understand who's not openly corrupt. So it appears they may not have heard clearly from me what I was saying in the class. We were saying that when you're sick, the sickness that allows you to do tayammum is the kind of sickness that you know from prior experience will worsen or be prolonged if you make wudu with water uh, or you receive advice from a physician telling you not to use water for wudu and to make tayammum instead. The condition for that physician is that he has to be Muslim and he cannot be fasiq. He cannot be uh, openly corrupt. Uh, this means this person is not openly engaging in kabair, major sins, 
and they're not openly persisting in the minor sins. So they have their integrity, they're upright, generally speaking. And the reason why the doctor giving you advice about tayammum has to be upright and not a fasiq is because to make tayammum or use water is connected to an act of worship. So the person giving you the advice has to have concern for deen. If they don't have concern for deen, if they are careless in that regard, how can you rely on their advice? So but if they are upright and they're not openly fasiq, this means they have the necessary level of diana that would uh, have them give you sound advice about whether you should or should not use water for wudu. All right. And the last question. It says, I have feet which get pretty chapped, so much so that they hurt. So I often use layers of cotton socks with thick socks. Can those be wiped over? Considering that water would not penetrate through them. And what's the answer, guys? Yes, exactly. They've basically answered the question themselves by saying that the water would not penetrate through them. Uh, as long as the material is tahir, pure, and it's thick enough where water will not penetrate, this would be allowed, and they can uh, take that position. And the whole issue of wiping over the, the socks, it is the school of Imam Madik that takes the strictest position, which says that the, the socks must be uh, leather, and they can't be of any other substance. So, and in the other schools, there's, there's other conditions, but generally more lenient in terms of what you can or cannot wipe over. Wallahu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.